Greetings, friends, and welcome back to my garage and this week's episode of I'm Frickin' Lonely, How About You? Staying connected in the time of COVID. I know, I know, we're all sick of COVID, hearing about it, thinking about it, and many of us are pretending it's not even a thing anymore. That being said, we're still feeling the impacts of it and the related societal issues it has caused. And my guests' stories about how it's impacted their lives certainly still resonate. I'm your host, Sheila Nall, and I'm looking forward to our discussion with this week's guest, Carol Markowitz. Before she retired seven years ago, Carol was the Chief Program Officer at Eden Autism Services in Princeton. She spent her entire career working in the field of autism, and I hope to hear more about what led her in that direction during our conversation today. Along with her work in autism, she is an author and contributed a chapter to the book Autism Spectrum Disorders in Adolescents and Adults, published by the Guilford Press in 2014. Since retiring, she has continued her passion for writing and has developed a keen interest in historical stories related to World War II. Again, great fodder for our talk. Truly, from the little bit I know about Carol, we'll have trouble covering it all in just 45 minutes. Welcome, Carol, and thanks for joining us today. Can you give us a little more info about your background? Thank you, Sheila. Uh, Yes, I spent my entire career in uh, the field of autism. I started out as an undergraduate, actually, at Douglas College many years ago, and they were just starting a new program uh, at the time, and I was a senior in a psychology major, and I got interested in it. They were offering a class where you could work in their school one day a week as an undergrad for credit, and I started doing that and actually learned an enormous amount working with the teachers and the grad students there. And we worked, I worked in particular, they, they would assign us a student and we would stay with that same student. And I was working with a, a little girl who was seven years old and we were working with her on speech and language and we taught her to talk. Aww. And it was, it, it, still when I think about it, 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 it was an amazing experience. I bet it gives you chills. It does still. <laughs> All these years later, <laughs> it still does. And I was hooked. <laughs> I was hooked in the fi- on the field. Um, I went to graduate school, got a fellowship, got a job. That was really how I got involved in, in autism and started working at Eden way back when Eden was in a church basement on Mercer Street in Princeton. Mm-hmm. And had I didn't stayed realize with that. It. Yeah. yeah, okay. In Trinity Church. That was our very first okay. location. Mm-hmm. And um, I think we had like... 20 kids when we started, uh, very small program, very parent-oriented. We worked really closely with parents, and that's kind of the way the program evolved. So started my career there, met a guy there <laughs> <laughs> who also started working there. He had graduated from Princeton a couple years before, and he was uh, also a psych major and sort of drifting around. So that's how you met your uh, husband. And we met at work. Oh, wow. We met that's at cool. work. Mm-hmm. Um, and he continued in the field, um, eventually starting his own program, working with adults who were coming back to New Jersey from residential placements in other states. Okay. Uh, he was bringing these adults back, giving them group home placements, places to live, and a day program where they could work during the day. So he did that for many years, and he just retired Four years ago. He retired a little bit later than I did. So that was that was really his career was also in human services. But he also had a passion for writing. Mm-hmm. And he started writing uh, murder mysteries. Yeah, you said that. Um, any titles we might be familiar with? I <laughs> that our listeners I, I should look know, for? But <laughs> <laughs> sure, because he's out there. Uh-huh. His, his most recent, this past year during the pandemic, he published a novel called Hit or Miss, that's mm-hmm. a murder mystery that's that's really a lot of fun. And he also published a novella this fall that's called uh, Motive for Murder. So you all out there can be looking for those. And what, what's uh, his name? I Jeff, it's Jeff Markowitz. Okay. So he's findable on uh, Amazon and wherever you get your murder mysteries. That's he's great. also written some <laughs> short stories. So he's, he's very engaged. And what happened was he became the, the sort of our, our directions turned a little bit. He became president of the Mystery Writers Society of America New York chapter a few years ago. Okay. And he, as a result of that, was very engaged with the mystery writing community in this area, Philly, the city, um, you know, they, they cover a lot of territory. 
and as a result, I got to meet a lot of other authors mm -hmm. also at events and, and book readings and things like that. Um, so I met a lot of authors, discovered that the community of authors was incredibly supportive, although I was starting to write in a very different, I was writing nonfiction, super supportive. You know, what are you working on? How's mm -hmm. it going? Um, so that sort of became our newer group of friends. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, you had said, that, I guess, once you retired, um, what was it? You said you found some letters that got you interested in the World War I II? I did. Uh, you know, my, my mom passed away about nine years ago. And after I retired, I was going through some boxes of things that I had taken from her house that I had not had time to really look at. Mm -hmm. And in the boxes, I found packets of letters that were all... They were tied in the ribbon. They oh. were all in chronological order. What a treasure trove. And they were still oh in their original envelopes. Mm -hmm. And my mom, for her career, was a history teacher okay. at New Brunswick High School. She started teaching in 1944, I believe. So it was sort of during the war when she was in college and started her career. So she was writing to some people who were... Uh, one was a soldier in um, a field artillery battalion who, as it turns out, was her high school boyfriend. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> they graduated <laughs> together in 1939 uh -huh. uh, from high school. The other was a young man who was a medic in an evac hospital. Mm -hmm. When I say evac hospital, think of the TV show MASH, MASH. <laughs> only multiply it by like 100 so that it's huge. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. there's hundreds of tents and hundreds of personnel. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and he was, he was a medic, he was a dental technician, and they both ended up stationed in Europe, although they didn't know each other. Um, the second guy uh, she met at USO dances because she was in D at Douglas College. The USO would have dances, and they'd invite the girls from the college. And, of course, there were no boys around because everybody was in the service. Right. You know? So uh, she met this young man. And my grandmother kind of opened up her house because uh, she had two sons, both in the service. Mm -hmm. And my grandmother sort of was like, yeah, soldiers are welcome to come for dinner, um, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And they fell in love, <laughs> <laughs> clearly, yeah. from reading the letters. Uh, they, were, they were very much in love with each other um, and letters that, that she had received from his mom. So... There was, you know, it wasn't like somebody said to me, well, were they pen pals? And I was like, no. <laughs> there was a real personal connection yeah. between these people. The young letter man, writing is a lost art. It's, it's a lost art. It's amazing art. the stories that are told through letters historically. And they're, they're, they're beautiful to read and to actually hold because they're historical. And They wrote in fountain pen mm -hmm. or pencil. Mm -hmm. Those were their two options. The young man who was in the field artillery battalion, after he finished his training, his battalion went off to Europe. They went to North Africa from there to Italy. And unfortunately, after like a month of the fighting in central Italy, he was captured by the Germans. Oh, dear. Uh -huh. And he ended up in a prisoner of war camp. And for about a month, no one knew where he was yeah. or if he was even still alive. He was just missing. Yeah, he certainly couldn't communicate. And my mom started getting these letters back that she had written to him that were marked missing. Mm. And they were signed by a lieutenant in his battalion. So those were among the letters in the packets, yep. the ones that had yep. been returned. That's And you see them and you think, that kind of gives me a chill as well, because you see that and think, oh my God, you know, she was in her house, and she'd written all these letters, and then all of a sudden, mm -hmm. she's holding her own letter in her hand that says missing on it. Yeah. And this was, you know, a guy that she knew and was cared for and went through high school with, and now, is he alive? Where is he? Mm -hmm. And it turned out he was in a German prisoner of war camp in Prussia, Furstenberg, Prussia. Mm -hmm. He was in a Stalag, where he remained for the rest of the war. Wow. So he was in the Stalag for like two years Jeez, and survived and came home. Mm -hmm. So, you know, amazing story of his life, the forced marches through the winter in Germany um, in the winter of 1945 when the Germans moved all their prisoners west because of the oncoming Soviet 
army. Right. Um, yeah. So they will march through the snow. Through the snow. Yeah. With very little to eat, no coats. I mean, it was yeah. a horrendous time. But his story was amazing. The other guy's story also was amazing. His evac hospital followed the front. So they started in Casablanca, was their first place that they, they opened the hospital. At the beginning of 1943, from North Africa, they went to Sicily after we invaded Sicily because there was a great need for hospitals at that time. So then they set up in Sicily, and they were there for several months. From Sicily, they were in Italy, and then south of France. They followed the 7th Army that invaded the south of France after, this was in August, after D-Day, after that invasion, we mm-hmm. invaded um, south of France, and they followed the front all the way to Germany. Uh, 1945, they crossed the Rhine following the army mm-hmm. and ended up being one of the hospitals assigned to the Dachau concentration camp after it was liberated. Mm-hmm. So he wrote about that. Wow. So their stories... So these are the things that really got you hooked I was completely hooked. In, into your sort of new passion. and It really got me totally hooked. I had an interest in World War II history. Um, my father was in the Navy. My, two of my uncles were in, in the Army. Another was in the Navy. So I had an interest in it. But this just got me really excited about learning more. Yeah. Um, so I started to, you know, to research and write and ended up, you know, my husband's so funny because he looked at the letters and he saw how excited I was about it. And he looked at me and said, that sounds like a book. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you had said because you're both authors uh, or you, you became an author. Yeah. Or you had written, yep. you know, that chapter for the book, but then mm-hmm. now you started writing your own, um, you know, during the pandemic, you mm-hmm. had said that actually in a way that gave you the respite to really focus. Um, it, it did. Yeah. It did. And I, and I felt like both of us felt like we were really lucky that we had something that would really not just spend time on, but, you know, that we were passionate about and excited about to do during a time when we really couldn't go anywhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so writing, you know, you can be alone in your little room with your computer um, and your research can be online. I, I felt very fortunate that I found something that I was able to focus on and, and really enjoy um, mm-hmm. during that time. Yeah, really blessed because, you know, a lot of people were really anxious and, you know, worried about making ends meet and whatnot, whereas those of us who were retired had, beyond having to worry about that. And it's great that you were able to focus. And also the fact that, you know, it's a real bonus that both you and your husband being authors or uh, writers you know, that's really good synergy for creating a harmonious environment, you know, I would imagine. It is. It is. And um, we read each other's stuff. You know, we become each other's beta oh, readers. Nice. Yeah. Um, so that, you know, he'll read, I'll write something, he'll read it, and he'll, he'll write a chapter, and I'll read it. And I'll say, oh, I want to read more. This is good. So that, that, is, that is pretty harmonious. I found that after he retired, when, when I was retired and I was alone more of the time, it was really quiet in the house. It was mm-hmm. me and the, the two cats. And um, when he retired, then, of course, now there's the two of us, and, you know, we have to balance. Mm-hmm. So that first Christmas, he bought me a sweatshirt that said, go away, I'm writing on the back. <laughs> <laughs> so it's my little hint to mm-hmm. him, you know, it's like, no, leave me alone right now, I'm writing. I love that. That's great. <laughs> but um, you had also mentioned seeing your family during mm-hmm. the pandemic or the inability to... You said your son lives in Chicago? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, my son, um, he moved right before the pandemic. Um, his girlfriend is from the Chicago area, and they were seeing each other since college for a long time, living in two different parts of the country, and they had to sort of decide what they were going to do. She had a job in working for an insurance company out there, and because he's a tutor, uh, he tutors students in Greek and Latin language, all his work was online through the platform that's, it's not Zoom, but it's similar. So he was already online all the time mm-hmm. with his students. Sure. So it was very portable for him. It was easier for him to move. Mm-hmm. So he moved out there. Um, and we thought, you know, Chicago, you know, it's a couple hour flight. It's, you know, right. it's easy to get to. Yeah. <laughs> you know, all those things. Oops. We helped him move. We, you know, we drove out with a car and, and a bunch of stuff and we helped him move into his apartment. And it was easy. You know, they'd come here, we'd go there. And then 
Sure. Everything stopped. Yeah, and like he everybody. was here uh, in New Jersey for a friend's birthday early March mm-hmm. 2020. 2020, yeah. And that was the last time we saw him for like a year and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, That's hard. That was hard. Yeah. That was that was probably the hardest thing mm-hmm. for I me. I think that's what I've consistently heard is just the separation of family. Yeah, uh, that know. was the hardest thing. You know, it was, we texted all the time. We sent pictures. We talked on the phone. We did Zoom. We did, you know, we, we kept in close touch, but we didn't see each other mm-hmm. for a long time. Yeah. And nothing uh, like a hug. No. <laughs> No, exactly. You know, no, no hugs. And uh, we had always hosted Thanksgiving for my family. And that was sort of a tradition that I had taken on from my mom. And that had to stop. Mm, Of course. Yeah. And that was, you know, my family and their extended family had kind of gotten larger. Mm -hmm. And that stopped. Mm -hmm. So the first year we did a Zoom Thanksgiving call. Yeah. (laughs) Everybody on, you know. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, it's just not, not the same. Even remotely, the you know the same. So that was that was hard. You know, get, not being able to get together with them. My family are all in either New Jersey or local. You know, we would all get together. Mm-hmm. My husband's family are all over the country. So he's <laughs> probably accustomed to not seeing them that much. <laughs> yeah, they they don't all. They almost never all get together. Uh, family wedding a few years ago was the last time I think we all were in one place at the same time. Yeah, I was joking in one of the one of these podcasts about all the weddings are done, so the next is going to be when my brother, sister, and I start dying off because <laughs> we're the next in line to <laughs> kick off. <laughs> it's an odd feeling when you're the older generation, yeah. isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we both are. Our parents <laughs> bo- are all have, yeah. have died. Same. So yeah, we're the older generation now, yep. you're right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's like, oh boy, and the next yep. family reunion. Which <laughs> it's a, yeah, crapshoot. <laughs> True, true. Oh, gosh. Yeah, so um, back to the, you had talked about your husband ha- mm-hmm. having a mystery writers group. Mm-hmm. And so is that how you became familiar with it or, or sought out a military writers group? You said that there's actually a yeah, society? There's, there's a society of uh, American Society of Military Writers. They're really pretty active. They have... A yearly conference. Now, I haven't gone to their conference because of the pandemic. Sure, uh-huh. I joined the society after it started. But um, they have an annual conference, and they run writing workshops. So those, I have done several of those. They're really fun. They're really interesting. It's sort of like-minded people because everybody's writing about military subjects. Right. That's so wonderful to find as yeah. kindred spirits and, and that's feed off been, of them. Yeah, that's that's, so that's cool. been a lot of fun. So I've I've enjoyed I've enjoyed participating in in those workshops, um, and and that's sort of one of the upsides. And I talked to a friend about this, and they said, "Yeah, but you can't network." And I was like, "Yeah, but I've gone to a lot of conferences, lectures." All over the country. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I was listening to an author at one point who was speaking in Scotland. Mm-hmm. Um, another historian who was in Warsaw, Poland. You know, everybody is all over the world on Zoom. Mm-hmm. So th- that, I think, has sort of been a benefit mm-hmm. um, to be able to participate in things that I would not have been able to do in person, sure. probably. You know, yeah. I went to a couple workshops that were both sent, both in um, Iowa, that were writers' workshops mm-hmm. um, that were interesting. So, you know, the the World War II Museum in in New Orleans. I've gone to a bunch of their stuff. Now, before the pandemic, I used to go in person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. how, yeah, how did you find out about about that museum? It sounds um, like it's really quite something we, related to you know their focus on the on the New war. Orleans. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> how did that, that museum said. end up in New Orleans? Seems like a strange place for. It started out with Stephen Ambrose, um, who wrote uh, Band of Brothers, Mm -hmm. and a colleague of his, who was also a veteran, and they decided in their backyard barbecue one night to start a D-Day museum, and they're both in New Orleans. And um, that's that's how it started, and now it's a huge campus. Mm -hmm. Um, It's an enormous museum. It's got exhibits from all of the different parts of the war, uh, Europe, the Pacific, thousands and thousands of artifacts that have been donated mm-hmm. by families and, and veterans. 
and they've collected hundreds and hundreds of um, oral histories that are fascinating to listen to. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. So they've, they've really done a nice job of looking at the war from the vantage point of individual soldiers, sailors, um, people on the home front. Wow, I wish I'd known about that. My dad, um, he uh, landed D-Day plus two, and that man <clears> had <throat> stories about, you know, just yep. getting off of the landing craft over the side instead of out when they dropped the, the gate, and he said right. that was what saved his life because his buddies were being picked off. When they went out front, he went over the side and was hiding behind some of those crossbars, and he said he could hear the bullets pinging wow. against the steel of those, you know, those big crossbars that were in the, oh my in the water, you know. So, But he had to bury dead horses. I mean, just, you know, just all those kinds of stories, you yep. know. So yep. he would have loved. <laughs> but he, yeah. yeah, he passed away actually December 2019. So oh, he, fortunately, sorry. well, fortunately, though, he missed the, the pandemic, which yeah. is good because he was in assisted living at that time or um, almost hospice, really. Yeah. So, yeah, the, the stories that these veterans have to tell, and, and fortunately, as they're, you know, now, you know, most of them are, are passing away. You're sure. Yeah. Um, because they're all in their 90s, 90s or yeah. they're 100 or mm-hmm. they're, you know, they're, they're so much older. Yeah. But the collection is wonderful. I met a man down there, um, Jim Peewee Martin. You can find him all over Facebook, actually. Um, he just turned 101. And wow. he's one of these guys. He was in the 101st Airborne. So he uh, parachuted behind Utah Beach on D-Day. Wow. Um, he was in that group. And he was also um, at Bastonia with the famous, when, when the Germans had surrounded the city and they demanded that the Americans surrender. And um, the general looked at the delegation from the Germans and said, nuts. <laughs> that was his famous quote. And there's actually a plaque yeah. in Bastonia that says nuts on it. I love that. Um, but anyway, he was there because mm-hmm. he was the 101st, so he was in that also. So I met him at the museum a few years ago at their conference, and th- nobody had more energy than this guy. I think at the time he was like 98 years old. He was just interesting, interesting guy. And when the 75th anniversary of D-Day, he parachuted into Normandy again. Oh, He was in his 90s. Oh, I love that. That's fantastic. <laughs> So, you know, I, I, it's, it's been a passion, but it just, it just continues to fascinate me, mm-hmm. you know, especially looking at all these individual stories of these men and women who served. The nurses were pheno- amazing, mm-hmm. phenomenal. So, uh, so have you actually written some books? So my book is finished. Okay. It is looking for a publisher cool. <laughs> right now. I have it out there uh, to several publishers. I'm, I'm actually waiting to hear back from a couple Does it have right a now. title? It is called Yours for the Asking, A Soldier's Letters Home. Aww. And the Yours for the Asking came from one of the soldiers signed all his letters. Yours oh, for wow. the Asking. <laughs> I love that, honestly. People just used to write differently. Yeah. So much more poetic. And Amazing what kind of poetry yeah. would come out of soldiers. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And you picture them, you know, sitting at their in their little tent, you mm-hmm. know, with the cold or the mm-hmm. mud or the rain, you know, yeah. with their fountain pens and their writing. Yeah. And the one guy in the German prisoner of war camp wrote from the camp. The Red Cross got these letters back and forth mm-hmm. from the POW camps. So I have about, I think, 11 letters from him that were on the stationery that's marked with the German writing that says Prisoner of War Camp on the top in German. Oh, my gosh. And um, wow. they're all in pencil. Because mm-hmm. That's all they had to write with. But uh-huh. uh, they survived. Wow. So I have several of those letters. Fabulous. My feeling eventually is to donate all this to either the World War II Museum or to someplace where they'll be archived. Mm-hmm. Um, Anyway, eventually. But so right now my book is seeking a publisher. <laughs> but it's it's finished, it's finished, it's footnoted, and it's it's all nonfiction. Uh-huh. So it contains letters. And then I wrote about what was happening in the war at the time that the letters were written. So when uh, the one man is writing right. about being in Casablanca. Get a, getting in a sense of place. Exactly. You yeah, know, that context. was when... Um, 
Roosevelt and Churchill were in Casablanca for their conference, and mm-hmm. he actually saw Roosevelt. Uh, Roosevelt toured uh, the troops when he was in Casablanca. Mm-hmm. So this guy actually got, to, you know, said, "Oh, you know, I saw Roosevelt, and I saw and a, and a big man with a cigar. They were riding around <laughs> in a jeep." You know? <laughs> yep. <laughs> So it tied it together with with the history, with what was going on. No, that, that's wonderful. Well, you know, I think it's really um, an, an interesting sort of link, again, back to the, to the pandemic. One of the things that we've learned is how to access things without being there. You know, you've learned all these things. You took these courses, and everybody has, has had to do that and realized, yeah, we can do this remotely. We can learn this. There, there's a lot of stuff out there now that we can access that maybe we hadn't really had to before. And you know. it's it's true. You know, and the sources, the resources, true. like the the museum. Yeah, and, you know, and the, the museum offers. Um, you know, they offer online. Actually, the last two conferences that were online were free, mm-hmm. so in cost to, anybody could have just logged on, mm-hmm. and. They're offering courses, uh, college-level courses, in conjunction with Arizona State University. Mm-hmm. And I've taken three of those, and they were great. Mm-hmm. They bring these lecturers in. As I said, one of the women was in, in Warsaw, was lecturing. Uh, one was in uh, Great Britain. Mm-hmm. You know, they bring these people together, but they're on Zoom, so mm-hmm. no one has to travel. Yeah, it's, it's fantastic. So that's yeah. actually, you know, that's kind of, I, I think, a good thing. Yeah. It's been yeah. a good thing. Well, it's wonderful that you have that passion and that, you know, that this thing really kickstarted you. But you did say that you're still, um, you're still involved, though, with autism in that mm-hmm. you're, um, you work for the Organization for Autism Research as a mm-hmm. grant reviewer. Yeah, that's um, a volunteer thing yeah. that I do. And it's really kind of fun because um, twice a year during their grant cycles, they, they email the grants. And they, they were always email anyway. This was not, never, you know, this didn't change. It was always on email. And I'd get like five or six grants to review. And they have a rubric that you fill out and you comment and talk about ways that it could be improved or should it be funded or not. And send everything in. And they decide, I'm only one of many grant reviewers they have, and they decide what they're funding for that year. And they give out these, um, they're $40,000 grants, and they're usually based on two years of work, and there are many, many of them are university people. But to me, it's interesting because I get to see what direction things are going in autism, mm-hmm. what people are thinking. A lot of it is based on new technology that's available, Things like working with parents remotely so that a parent's working with the child and the instructor is not in the house with them. Right. They're someplace else and they're talking in the parent's ear mm-hmm. through, a, you know. So there's all kinds of interesting innovation that's going on. Mm-hmm. So that's been, to me, just a lot of fun. And that's, that's a volunteer kind of thing that I'm doing. Well, yeah, and it's certainly something that you've dedicated your whole life to you can't just cut it off right yeah yeah <laughs> keeps me engaged yeah. well you know and we had talked briefly before we started recording about you know just the impact of the pandemic on families and people with autism and how difficult that time was for them because I don't know that much about autism but I um, generally the routine is important and, and your environment is so important um, you know, in fact, that's how I met you was through the yeah. fact that KSS used to design or still does right. design buildings and classrooms and housing, you know, related to autism. So. Right. So uh, it, it, people suffering, huh? I had already retired when the pandemic hit, sure, yeah. but I knew people working and I also knew parents, um, you know, and had many friends out there with children with autism or who were working there. And it was just a really difficult time. School had to shut down for a while, obviously. Everything shut down. Parents couldn't just put their kid in front of a computer right, and a say, there's your thing. teacher, do your lessons. Yeah. Impossible. Not like normal homeschooling, no. which in and of itself is Which difficult. was difficult anyway. <laughs> yeah. So the parent would have to be the one engaging with the teacher, and then the parent would kind of become the teacher and would have to work with their child so a lot of what we had done at Eden was having staff go into people's homes mm-hmm. and work with them in the home, help them out, problems with anything that was going on. You know, oh, my child doesn't sleep at night, you know, so we'd send staff people in. So that all, that, yeah, that all had to stop. That all had to stop completely. So that all became uh, just on the phone or through the computer, just talking mm-hmm. without being able to be there demonstrate things and be hands-on and you know all that had to stop so that was really hard on parents 
thinking of the younger kids, the older people who were um, our, our adult population. Eden works with children from preschool to 21 in the school, and then from 21 up to some of the people are in their 70s in the adult program. Wow, uh-huh. For a while, all of the adult facilities had to shut down. Mm-hmm. So all of the people who were living at home and going to jobs or going to an adult program during the day were now just home. Mm-hmm. So you yeah. think about parents having to give up a job maybe because they don't have, you know, their their child who's an adult still can't be alone. Right. So they need to be there to supervise. Or the child is just getting bored because they can't go anywhere. Mm-hmm. And they're upset because... They were going to a center every day or they were going to a job. I know one young man who talked about it on Facebook, who's on Facebook a lot, and he was a student of ours. He's in his 20s now. And he had a part-time job at one of the Wawa stores that he really enjoyed. Mm-hmm. And he would talk about it, Yeah, how it was, you know, I can't go anymore. And yeah. he'd talk about, you know, well, Governor Murphy made them shut down. <laughs> and, you know, he was very in tune with what was going on. Yeah. Uh-huh. But he was very upset that he, you know, he couldn't go to his job. So he was stuck in his house for a long time. I know parents who had adult children who were in residential facilities, they locked down for a while before there was vaccine so the parents could visit. Mm-hmm. Or if they were used to taking their children home for weekends, things like that, that had to stop for a while. So I can't there even imagine. Months where they couldn't see them. Mm-hmm. The children, adult children, may not have understood what was going on. You know, I'm, I'm not going home anymore. I don't, you know, that kind of thing. That's terrifying. I, and I, I, one, I know one family that just said, you know what, we're just going to take our son home and he's going to live in our house for a while mm-hmm. because otherwise we know we're not going to be able to see him. Uh, so parents had to make those kinds of choices. Yeah. You know, am I going to, is he going to stay in his facility where he lives and he's very comfortable, but then I can't see him. So I think there was a lot of very, very heart-wrenching, gut-wrenching kind of decisions that had to be made. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it was just a very hard time. Yeah, that's a whole aspect of this that most of us wouldn't even think about, you know, the, the trauma of that, mm-hmm. and those kinds of families, and, and how hard those decisions must have been. Just terrible. You know, I, I, I can't even imagine... Um, I dear friend of mine is is the chief program officer now at Eden, and her job is just, I can't even imagine <laughs> how hard that was, mm-hmm. you know, during that time yeah. of being responsible for all that and trying to make it all sort of stay together yeah. and having people in group homes 24-7 and having to have staff there 24-7. Yeah, I can't even imagine. Talk about frontline workers. Yeah, so they were definitely frontline workers. Yeah. So, you know, thank goodness with getting everybody vaccinated or a lot of people vaccinated, things have opened up again. Mm-hmm. The um, adult programs have opened up again. The schools open again, you know, so that people could go back to some semblance of normalcy. In yeah. Their lives. yeah. Are you familiar with an um, organization called We Make? Yes, um, I am. Okay, because they, um, <laughs> they work toward, I uh-huh. guess, providing meaningful careers for adults uh-huh. with autism. And um, I learned about them through my involvement with uh, the Father Center of New Jersey. Um, mm-hmm. I had three gentlemen here a couple episodes ago who talked mm-hmm. about the Father Center. And it turns out, I just learned because um, the Father Center is having their Platinum Dads Awards in June. And uh, I got a notification that We Make actually is, is one of the sponsors. And so I said, oh, I looked up We Make. I'm like, oh, gosh. Yeah, I wonder if Carol is familiar with them. I am. Uh, the the guy who is running the program and actually, I guess, really founded the program's name, uh, Mo Sadiq, mm-hmm. Sadiqi, I get his name wrong, but he's a terrific guy. He used, he worked with us for a while and he went out and created this program with one of the dads mm-hmm. and they put together a workshop up in Hillsboro. And I got to tour it. He invited me to come out and see it. Uh-huh. And they're doing some wonderful things. Very, very individualized program. Uh, very highly motivated staff. Yeah, they're, they're doing some really good work. Oh, wonderful. Well, yep. hopefully when I go to the, to the mm-hmm. event for the Platinum Dads, hopefully I'll meet somebody. From, yeah. If I meet Mo, if he's yeah. there, I'll say, hey, Carol says hi. Yeah, he might, he <laughs> might be. He might be. Definitely say hi for me. Yeah. But yeah, they're doing very good work out there. Yeah. Yeah, so through these organizations mm-hmm. that you've uh, talked about, you know, it sounds like you've really been staying well engaged. Sometimes it's just funny because I say, like, the past week, 
I, I look at my calendar and say, wait, I'm retired. Like, <laughs> I'm too busy right now. I've got something every day. Uh-huh. Um, but it's good. It's, it's, you know, it's good stuff. It's oh, good well, I'm stuff. glad you found time to come, <laughs> come here. But I really want to now uh, segue into talking about your newest passion, which is, sounds so fascinating. My newest passion, I got involved because actually uh, the woman who got me interested in, and involved in it is a writer, and she was a friend of my husband's first. She met him through Mystery Writers of America. Oh, that's uh, how that connection New York chapter. Made. Okay. She's a New York City mm-hmm. writer. And she traveled extensively around the world. She was always a, that was her, her passion was travel and writing. And she'd research and then write about places that she was. And, and one of the series of books she wrote was set in Africa. And she had traveled a lot in Africa, and she'd made friends there with a young game warden who was an anti-poaching game warden in Kenya, Mm -hmm. and his wife, and discovered that his wife was starting to shelter girls in her home who were at risk of female genital mutilation or female circumcision, Mm -hmm. and then being married off to older men at very young ages. Some of the girls were as young as 10 years old. That's horrific. And these practices are against the law in Kenya, but in rural areas, they would, can, they would still happen. Mm-hmm. So, Was uh, it to get money? I mean, family yeah, there's would a, there's essentially a sell price. their children? There would be a bride price, yeah. yeah. And it was also within uh, the particular area of Kenya, Samburu, the people are Maasai, so a lot of this was, he- was engaged in the Ma- was part of the Maasai culture. Oh, really? Okay. Um, and their practices were, you know, the men really controlled all the co- economy. And the economy is really based on um, livestock. Mm. And it's a very sure. rural yeah. place. Um, it's, they're out there in the desert. They're about 90 miles from Nairobi. So they're really out there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very, very rural, pastoral kind of place. But the men would control all of the resources. And the women were the ones who would take care of the house, have the children, um, do the farming, you know, whatever. You know, they were doing a lot of that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But a lot of these girls started to have, they, there were things they wanted to do. They wanted to stay in school. Mm-hmm. They didn't want to be married at age 12 or 15 sure, to yeah. a 50-year-old man. They wanted to stay Go in figure. school. They wanted to learn. Uh, one of them, I, I know one of the earlier girls that she'd taken in became a nurse, mm-hmm. went through not just high school, but went on to nursing school, became a nurse. And Sarah herself has two master's degrees in education that she managed to get living in the bush. Wow. In Kenya. You know, she That's managed impressive. to get herself. Yeah, she's yeah. a very, very impressive woman. Yeah. Very impressive. Mm-hmm. Uh, really a, a, a dynamic person. So she started taking girls into her home. And my friend Pat King. Um, it almost sounds dangerous, though, is it? It can be. It can be. Mm-hmm. She sometimes has to, you know, because the practices are illegal, mm-hmm. she, can, she can call in the law. She can okay. call in the police yeah. um, if she has a problem with, with the family. Mm-hmm. If the girl has run away and doesn't want to go home, uh, you know, she's able to, to get the police involved. But um, she's, as I said, she's just a dynamic person. Uh, her name is Sarah Lezumito. And... Um, now she's 33 girls Wow! Uh-huh. <laughs> that she's housing. So they built a building because her house was overflowing. Sure, too many yeah. people. So like a so, dorm. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so they built a building, and uh, she's got these girls all living sort of communally. They, she provides food, clothing, shelter, medical care, mm-hmm. and they're, still, they're all in school. That's and great. transportation to school so they can all get to school. And then in Kenya, um, high school is not a given. Mm-hmm. You have to pass a test to go to high school, and you have to um, also there's tuition that's you have to pay to go to high school. Mm-hmm. It's it's more like going to college here. And uh, some of the girls had a real motivation that you know they wanted to continue their education. So that's part of the funding that's needed uh, to provide tuition so these girls can go to high school 
or if they're going to go to college, they're going to go someplace like Nairobi, they're going to need money for everything, you know, be able to live there, mm-hmm. as well as, uh, you know, in a dormitory, that kind of thing. So once they escape, they just stay with her until they're of age, more or less? As long as they want to, really. Okay. I mean, as I said, the one the one young woman became a nurse, went all through school and went through nursing school, mm-hmm. and has now come back to the community and is providing medical services and medical care to people in the Samburu, in the community, okay. rural community. Uh-huh. So what's happening now, which is, I think, fascinating, she's beginning to change hearts and minds. Oh, good, good, good. So some of these fathers who were very, very against their daughters staying in school now are supporting her and are making donations oh, and helping so how have you been able to be involved? So my friend from Pat, here? who's a dear friend, uh, got me involved, and she assembled this small group of, of women and said, you know, I've been, sending, I've been sending money, but this is really informal. I want to be able to have them get a nonprofit designation so that we can do some fundraising mm-hmm. and keep this going mm-hmm. so that she can continue to grow, she can continue to help these girls, you know, have a place to live and, and be able to flourish, which is what's happening. So we're working with Sarah, who's in Kenya, mm-hmm. to get her, her nonprofit designation, which she currently has in Kenya. But now we have to also, she also has to have a designation of nonprofit status in the United States mm-hmm. for us to be able to fundraise and people to be able to donate to her mm-hmm. from And then have it tax the US. deductible. Exactly. <laughs> and be tax deductible. Uh, other, you know, of course, anyone can send money, but yeah. you know, this will make it tax deductible. Mm-hmm. We can really start some, some uh, fundraising for her because she wants to keep growing. You know, she... Mm-hmm. She had 30 girls, and then she had these couple of girls who were, she said, just terrible situation. So, of course, I took them in. Mm-hmm. I didn't have any room. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I squeezed them in because, I, you know, I couldn't turn them away. Right. What are you so she do? wants to keep being able to do that right. and keep yeah. being able to grow the agency. It's wow. a wonderful agency. It's called the Sedai Resource Center. Mm-hmm. Um, as, as I said, it's in Samburu, Kenya. We all, all our meetings are on Zoom. How do you spell that? S I D A I. Sedai. Okay. And I believe it. I'm going to say this wrong. I think it means hope. Mm-hmm. Um, they all speak really good English. The girls are really smart. I I've been I had some correspondence from one of them, and her goal is to go to medical school. Mm-hmm. And she's very intent on that as, as a goal for herself. Do they all want to stay there? Do they have aspirations to leave Kenya? Or do they want to stay there and support you know, their community? They're pretty much so far, they're probably not all, they probably don't all want to stay, but so far a lot of them are staying mm-hmm. and are supporting, you know, coming back and, and supporting the local community. Um, I imagine that won't, you know, that won't happen with everybody, mm-hmm. but... Uh, but yeah, a lot of them are, are staying and, and helping out with the community. And they're, these girls are just flourishing. They're happy. They're, you know, just seeing their faces. Uh, we recently were able to get them a donation of a lot of books. Mm-hmm. Um, and Sarah went and picked them up with a van and, and was setting up like a, a little library for them mm-hmm. on the site. And they're so excited. Uh-huh. You know, these books. You know, it, have you gotten to meet any of them? Yeah, the the one girl, the one girl. Yeah, but it's all you know. Even said, it's all on Zoom. Zoom but, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. But, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, they're they're lovely. They're absolutely lovely, and they're smart, and they have they have goals and aspirations for things they want to do, you know, with their lives. Well, it's so wonderful because I mean, this is something you really have an imp- an impact on people's. I mean, straight up on their lives. You know, yep. I mean, the just yep. make or break. Yep. And uh, and that's fantastic. So I'm sure that's that's a huge motivator. It's, it's just it's just been great. Yeah. You know, we recently Sarah had to write a constitution is what they called it, but it was really bylaws for the organization. Mm-hmm. And she put it all together. It was beautifully done. So we're very very close to having an application in so that they will be recognized in the US. The official. Very very close. Yeah. yeah. That's fantastic. That's, yeah. That's really exciting. Well, it certainly sounds like you have found a lot of things to, you know, and and then it all, you know, kept going, pandemic or no pandemic, because really, you know, you had the tools in place to, to keep it going. You know, the, all these organizations were highly accessible. They and, were. Uh, I, I you felt, could just stay involved. I felt very, very lucky yeah. 
that I was doing things that could just become computer and Zoom and email. Nothing really had to stop because of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And for me, that was wonderful. You know, after working for 40 years at, at a career, I wanted to stay, you know, I wanted to stay engaged with people. Absolutely. and Yeah, exactly. I can relate 100%. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I'm talking to you right yes. now. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's been delightful to hear the hear about this, and I'm going to look into all these organizations more. I've learned, you know, even just after I got your outline researching some of these organizations, I had no idea existed. World War II writers, and mm-hmm. we didn't even talk about the the lawyers. The lawyers group. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm on their board of... <laughs> yeah, let's board. not skip over that. Just I'm sorry about quickly, that. Quickly, it's... Yeah. Um, NJ Lawyers Assistance yeah. Program. It's NJLAP. NJLAP. Yeah. Uh, they're based in New Brunswick at the Law Center. They provide assistance, referral groups to lawyers who are struggling in some way, maybe with depression, with uh, substance abuse, gambling, things that are potentially har- will harm their career. They're struggling with their practice. And these people answer the phone and, and help basically, and refer them to either places they can get help or... Now, the group's problematic. Again, here we go with the pandemic. They were running a lot of support groups, mm-hmm. and some uh, that had to stop. So it all sort of went to telephone, unfortunately, during, during the pandemic. But, um, yeah, they do a lot of really good work, mm-hmm. help a lot of people. They're funded through the New Jersey Bar Association. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's a really good organization. They're doing a lot of really great work. And I've been on the board for a while, so that's been you know that's been really interesting and really kind of different for me, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> different different area. Well, for and me. I can imagine that the demand for that again, you know, would increase during the pandemic because mm-hmm. I'm sure that you know attorneys like everybody else, I'm sure their business was was harmed. You can have your up close and personal interactions with your client base, and client base would probably drop off, and yep. a lot of people probably got really stressed out and needed. Need that kind of assistance? Absolutely. Yeah. It was it was a difficult time. It's or, you know all everybody really, but lawyers. Yeah, the courts shut down, so that if they're trying cases, the case was on hold mm-hmm. for you know maybe a long period of time. Some of the lawyers I, I met there talked about things like you know we would meet one on one, and that would be the personal contact with the with the client was really important mm-hmm. for us to get to know them and be able to see them and sort of watch their body language and, and learn who they were. And they're saying, well, on the phone or on the computer, it's not the same. No. Not the same at all. And as you say, yeah, the courts were closed down, and so cases weren't being heard. Mm-hmm. I, I heard I learned this a little bit from one of my other guests, Alan Mayman. He's mm-hmm. with the Centurion Group. They're an innocence project. Mm-hmm. And their inability to get their clients who are stuck in, you know, on death row perhaps, you know, more often than not, and not able to get their cases heard. And so I can imagine that the same kind of a, of a thing. You know, it's... Yep. Uh, it was, you know, another Interesting group thing that, to think about. Never. Another group struggling, you know, during yeah. the pandemic that yeah. that was difficult. And and we've... One of the things that, that we've worked on as, as an agency has been outreach mm-hmm. to lawyers, law students, law schools, law firms. Because lawyers, and I, and I think this may be to generalize this also maybe to, to doctors, don't typically ask for help. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They don't want to be seen as needing help. Yeah. It's like, I'm, I'm fine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm fine. Sure. I can handle it. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm okay. Even if they're not. Yeah. So, you know, we, we've also, one of the things that they've done a lot is um, outreach mm-hmm. to let them know that this is a completely confidential resource. You know, you can call, nobody will know who you are or... You know, we, we won't share this information with anybody. Totally confidential, mm-hmm. um, you know, if you need help yeah. or you know someone who needs help. Amazing. So I just really can't believe all the things you're involved in. And <laughs> <laughs> I would like to see your calendar. But uh, <laughs> I'm sure it's just... It gets very busy. Yeah, it's very definitely. Busy. Well, Sometimes. this has just been fascinating. I have learned so much today. And yeah, I, I do every week, but this has been been something um so do you have any closing thoughts you want to share with folks this week I, you know i i was thinking about you know one of the things that that you had written was what people should try to do or what you know and and i feel like 
Well, if you're retired like I am, it's really great to try. And I had this discussion with Marilee actually at one point. Find your passion. Mm -hmm. And it may be in a very different direction. You know, when I retired the first summer, I was like, wow, summer vacation. You know, (laughs) I'd Uh never taken a whole summer off. And all of a sudden I had the summer. Uh, But then, you know, of course, summer ends. And now what? Mm -hmm. So to kind of pursue. In your face. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) To pursue a passion that you didn't have time for. Mm -hmm. I never thought I was going to write a book about (laughs) World War II. Yeah. Never, ever would I have thought that, like, you know, 10 years ago. I wouldn't have thought that. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, find something that that you're interested in Mm -hmm. and, and go for it. Yeah. Because now you've got the time. Yeah. So, you know, that, that would really be my advice to, mm-hmm. you know, to, to look around and say, hmm, you know, what is that thing that, that I always thought would be a lot of fun or interesting or exciting mm-hmm. that I didn't have time for? Yeah. Yeah. And throw yourself into it. Yeah. And, 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 <laughs> and jump in. Yeah. <laughs> Give it a try. And even people who aren't, you know, retired, you know, identify that mm-hmm. and build toward it. You yeah, know, and, exactly. And use it to guide your career too. Yeah. If you can, if yes. you're lucky enough to be able to work in your passion, mm-hmm. boy, bonus points. Yes. <laughs> so, yes. well, anyway, um, yeah, I guess we're getting near the end and okay. uh, so we'll have to say goodbye, but I want to thank you so much for, for coming and talking with us today, you're Carol. Welcome. It was delightful to spend this time with you and um, yeah, I hope to, Keep in touch. Good. Very good. <laughs> Thank you, Sheila. I enjoyed it. Yeah. And for our listeners, you know, thanks for listening as ever. And I hope that you uh, learned something today, too. And that you'll tune in next time when we continue to share how people's lives have evolved over the past two years and uh, how they've adapted to a pandemic-changed world. But until then, stay connected.